I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Shihai, Professor of Middle East Studies and Arab Studies at the College of William and Mary. He's also the founding faculty director of the Decolonizing Humanities Project, which seeks to validate elevate and learn from knowledge practices and creative expressions of communities of color, natives, and displaced peoples and marginalized identities. His work examines cultural, intellectual, art history, and the political economy of the Middle East with a special emphasis on the late Ottoman Empire and the Arab Renaissance. His research and written commentaries have also examined photography, psychoanalysis, minorities in the Middle East, Islamophobia in the United States, and contemporary issues of the Middle East and North America. His three books include Foundations of Modern Arab Identity, Islamophobia, the Ideological Campaign Against Muslims, and the Arab Imago, a Social History of Indigenous Photography from 1860 to 1910. His website is stephenshihai.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-H-E-E-H-I.com. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Trapart Books, 2019, and also available as an ebook through iBooks and Kindle. For more information, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You may also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You know, Laura has done all this work, so I kind of you know, the Division 39 conference next week, she and two other women of color um, organize this. And it really does show, give a framework of really the state of the field, um, where it's going. I mean, it's also, it's different to the work that's been done. So sort of more traditional work is actually still there. She's included, you know, evidence-based stuff and research, you know, that everyone accuses, 
you know, a psychoanalysis of not having, that's there. Um, she's talking about social issues in very real ways, like autism panels, you know, and then she's doing more, uh, including more cutting edge stuff about race, gender, sexuality, you know, and it really is, um, I think, representative of all that psychoanalysis can offer rather than us, you know, talking about how retrograde it can actually be at times, you know, so it really is exciting. And I think a lot of people are really, really, really excited about it. And that's all that's coming out. And even like, you know, I think this, the whole tension within psychoanalysis is miscast as a generational tension. I really do. I think a generational tension is a guise for ideological uh, privilege. Uh, because there's a lot of folks who have been around and doing this for ages and punching it out and doing the work that we love for ages and they're, you know, in their 70s and they're as turned on as the people who are in their 20s and 30s, you know. Um, so I think, it, yeah, and that has to do with people like Lara, people like, uh, you know, uh, Nadine Arbade and Leila uh, Crane Salvo, who are, you know, Salvo Crane, who, you know, really put their heart into it. You know, it really, really shows. shows. Yeah, I mean, this is what inclusivity looks like. Shows what dynamism looks like. You know, but it also shows what deference looks like. You know, um, so yeah, it was really, and that has to also to do with her really incredible, uh, the team that she gathered around her, and that, that those three gathered around them. Um, their organizing committee. I don't, I don't know. Let's call it. It's, it's just really, really, really amazing. So. No, it yeah. must be. I'm excited about it because, uh, like I told her, that uh, I've never flown in f or flown anywhere for a Division 39 conference. The only ones I've been to were when they were in New York and I was in New York and it was, like, right. convenient, you know? Like, oh, yeah, I'll go there on the weekend, you know? Right. But uh, then I saw what she was doing and I was like, oh, yeah, 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 I need to go to this. I need to be a part yeah. of this. Carl was uh, actually going to be filming a movie in Greece during that time. And I was like, can oh. we do that in April so I can go to really? this? Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's a big sacrifice. It's it's worth it. I mean, I think this one is worth it. Um, you it's know, game changing. It, it really is, and I think again, at one level, I think it, it reflects. It really does reflect the state of the field of where we are and what we could be doing. But also, you know, she's she and 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 uh, Leilani and Nadine were very also mindful. I mean, they have, you know, the Lenape opening up with land acknowledgments. Um, and I mean, there's just a lot of sort of really thoughtful organizing that went into this. I mean, if you look at even the, you've seen the program itself, just aesthetically, it kind of just is, you know, very striking, um, not filled with a lot of, you know, silly pastels and, you know, confetti, right? Um, which, I mean, aesthetically, some, for someone who does art, aesthetically, that speaks to a particular sort of aesthetic, right? You know? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, no, the, the work like, on this is amazing. I mean, pastels are like the, the to me, like the... Um, Elementary the, school. And I don't know, it's, it's the, it's the um, uh, cowardice of not choosing an actual color, <laughs> you know? And also of, of actually of avoiding the, the line. Right, the line which has to be a black line, right, or a, and a black and white line, right. Um, so, aesthetically, those previous um, 
you know, the artwork and, and, and posters have, I think, have been representative of a certain form of, let's call it like psycho psychoanalytic aesthetic. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's really, I'm excited about it. Um, and You're sharing a panel? I am. I'm sharing a panel. It's called, um, it was called Beirut, Palestine. And I think now it's called Palestine in Beirut. Um, and it's uh, a number of uh, younger um, students and clinicians who I believe are either Lebanese or Palestinian born and raised in Lebanon and thinking about um, their positionality to uh, Zionism, to Israel, to Arabness, to their relationship, uh, their racial relationship in the United States, how that, how um, their Arabness and how Zionism and how the Palestinian uh, cause me um, mediates that relationship, and and of course how that also is contextualized within their own training and their own practice. So I'm really excited about it. I get, that's a good, another thing is I, I I get to do the the, the easy work, you know. Moderating. Yeah. It's really interesting though. What's the training like in Lebanon? In, in Lebanon, I, I'm not super familiar. I mean, that's something, you know, so, you know, I'm not an analyst or even a psychologist. I'm just a humble, um, you know, uh, <laughs> humble co country professor, you know, teaching, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I have um, the same trajectory as most people my age, which, you know, I come through the cultural studies revolution, you know, in, in college in the 80s and grad school in the 90s, you know, so. We were all, you know, lit up about post-structuralism and the way it meets Marxism and psychoanalysis. So, you know, for a long time, I think, as you probably well know, you know, Lacanianism was really, you know, um, the bastion of the academy and the bastion of you know, cultural studies people and complete people. Um, and that's kind of uh, how I came into it. So I really don't do clinical stuff and that's you know my work in, in Lebanon I mean in, in Palestine I don't really work in Lebanon that much um, in terms of psychoanalysis uh, and other things I do though um, but so I, I you know we're working on that uh, how training works there um, but that's actually more Lara's bailiwick than mine uh, I again this is great because I we get to do all these things I sort of sit down and I'm learning all the sort of the nuts and bolts um, and I don't say I've moved away from Lacan, I, I, but I've also been able to sort of contextualize Lacan a lot better because we're not really taught that in grad school, right? It's a really kind of um, silly sectarianism that we are taught in, in grad school, right? You have Freud and Lacan and then you sort of like, you know, mock everybody else out. But then when you actually read Lacan thoroughly, you understand that she, he is engaging not only Freud, but also, you know, Klein and, you know, whomever else, right? So uh, this is not to say that he seriously does not depart from them, but you tend to then approach others, Klein or whomever else, in a in a in a more in a less sectarian manner, you know. Um, so that's part of been my my learning process, and I, I I credit that again to having a um, you know a really healthy relationship with someone who's way smarter than me and who was involved in that in that formalized formalistic training, you know. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. There's, but you're a professor um, of cultural studies of the Middle East, yeah. Yeah, so I mean that. So I started off with uh, my my PhD is in, in in 
it's called New York Studies uh, at the University of Michigan. And I came and I was a, you know, an undergrad in sort of anthropology and liberal arts and uh, the whole theory jockey, you know, back in the day, you know, thinking about simulacras and, and you know, uh, Lacan and Marx and all these sorts of things. And I, um, my, my dissertation and the, my first book is thinking about the formation of modern Arab subjectivity in the 19th and early 20th century. And what I did is I looked at um, a bunch of sort of um, what we would call pulp fiction, but also uh, political tracts and, and biographies, autobiographies and um, articles and commentaries and just um, try to think about the ways in which Arab identity, modern Arab identity was articulated um, or being articulated in the moment of um, the emergence of modernity in the Arab world, uh, and of course, the colonial colonial um, encounter was in, uh, essential to this. Um, but it was always that kind of thing about finding it. You know, this is not something that's imposed, but on the other hand, this is like really complex dialectic. And that this is where Lacan helped me think through the formation of Arab subjectivity within a sort of Kojev, you know, a sort of Kojevian, sort of Hegelian uh, dialectic that was going on. That for me uncovered how Arab subjective, modern Arab subjectivity, as it was being articulated in the in the era of, you know, nationalisms, is is one that can only find itself lacking in relation to a master logos of European progress. Um, so you can see that where I think my work was kind of the first um, that really thought about the 19th and the early 20th century, and in fact, actually, I think Arabic literature in general uh, within Lacanian terms. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it works really well. I, I mean, I still, I still, <laughs> I'm still quite fond of you. Know, I think you always have a special relationship to your 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 first book, right? Um, so and it was it was impactful, I think, in the field. And I'm very fortunate about that. But um, that's that's where I. That's my sort of old world of of thinking about. Of having psychoanalysis help me think about um, Arab subjectivity and how it, how it impacts um, sort of formal processes of ego formation. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's the I don't know if that answer or that tells you anything, but it makes sense. Like it makes a lot of sense and is super interesting. Thanks. Yeah, like I have to say, you know, I think I uh, look back. And, and not to be a modest, you know, I look back, um, and the, the, I finished my dissertation in 1998, uh, and my book was published in 2004, it's called um, uh, Introduction of Modern Arab Subjectivity, actually the foundation of modern Arab subjectivity. It was actually initially called, the dissertation is called uh, Epistemography of Arab, Modern Arab Subjectivity, because I also want to think about issues of epistemolo uh, epistemology. And the epistemology of modernity and the epistemology of, sub, of, of subject formation itself in the modern era, right? Um, and um, you know, 20 years later, for the past you know five, six years, I've been really uh, immersing myself in what's called decolonial theory, and I really was reassured or validated that like you know I was doing this work in the 1990s and uh, subsequently you know thinking about how 
we are all saturated by what's called the coloniality of modernity, right? The coloniality of an epistemology that sort of uh, arranges a certain subjectivity in normative ways, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, um, it was it, it it was a good way to start my journey. I think that's been consistent, and it, I think it, it emerges in a number of my projects and one of my books subsequently. I have these like different different books that seem like they're not connected, but I think they all speak to some degree about the coloniality of um, of, of Arab modernity. And what are your other books? Beg your pardon? What are your other books? My other books are, uh, well, one which is uh, Islamophobia, uh, and I particularly take an um, interest of Islamophobia in the United States as an ideological formation that is um, mobilized for um, uh, U.S. power. Uh, but then my last book was um, called Arab Imago about the, um, it's the first book on uh, indigenous Arab photography or indigenous photography of the Arab world. They weren't all Arabs, some were Armenians and Assyrians and other um, minorities in the Middle East from 1860 to 1910. Uh, and there too, you know, I think here you can see, I'm just thinking about the epistemology of modernity and how it constructs the ways in which literally we see Right? How do you receive and how do you construct an image and how is that image seen as natural? And then I think I think also about like how do we read images and that what are how do images function within a time of uh, um, uh, severe social transformation? And, and my argument was that images are actually sort of um, I kind of reach into Mahler for that they sort of pr provide some sort of um, uh, object. Uh, uh, constancy, consistency, or whatever, um, uh, some object coherence in this time, it gives us something to latch onto. But on the other hand, if I, I also have a, a, I ask us to read both manifest and latent context of an image, mm -hmm. right, which the, the manifest actually tells us about, a st sort of stabilizes the way we see, the way we have social relations, the way we interact with one another, our intersubjectivity, maybe we can say, uh, in psychoanalysis. But also the latent is that which actually constructs and gives meaning with by also being excluded. So you'll have images of, you know, sort of respectable, uh, respectable middle class, but also what has been what has been locked out. What is this trying to be forgotten? Uh, what is that threatens that in, in the Middle East? You know, um, that has to be pushed to the has to be pushed to the margins to make sense of the stability. If that makes you know if that if that is coherent. So. Yeah, so that's my second book on, on um, uh, photographic portraiture. Really, um, I I spend you know two hundred pages looking at carte de visite. <laughs> um, yeah, that's so amazing. That, yeah, I like it. It's a good. It's a. It's a. It was a. It, that was. We were talking earlier, you and I, about the how long projects take, and that one was something that comes out of you know, you know, twenty years interest in, in visual culture and never having the courage to sort of write about it. Until I was able to punch the the ticket, of uh, I had to write these other book, this other book first, these other articles first, to be able to have sort of I feel legitimacy to move into the visual, uh, and you you yourself sort of commute between the visual and the theoretical, so you know, you know I don't know if you feel that as well. Yeah, it makes sense because uh, yeah, the things I'm writing about now are things I've been interested in for 20 years. But I never even considered that I would ever, they would ever be something I would write about, especially like psychoanalytically or like tell my colleagues about, you know, 20 years right. ago. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, now it's, uh, now it's at least one book. 
but I think that also speaks to authority, right? And like, I know, for example, so, you know, I have my degree in uh, Near Eastern Studies. Um, because I have it in uh, what would, was previously called Oriental Studies, right? Because myself, I am a, a you know, a brown man in, uh, you know, American academics. I, you know, I think what happens is, is that we're um, put in particular um corrals that we're not allowed out of if you're in other words if you're a specialist on let's say arabic literature you're not qualified to ever talk really about english literature however if you're frederick jameson you can talk about chinese literature you can talk about anything you want right so that is why i think i felt that i wasn't i didn't have the credibility the legitimacy to go into the visual before I was able to sort of establish myself and within a cultural studies milieu, also I was able to establish some sort of, you know, theoretical bona fides, which allowed you then to commute. Um, it's not the purview of people who do area studies, let alone, you know, Middle Eastern studies, East Asian studies, South Asian studies, African studies, Latin America. It's not our, we don't have the liberty in many ways to to commute, to think about you know, other disciplines as if you did anthropology. I mean, if you look at anthropologists, you know, people, get, they write their first book on anthropology and they, you know, they, they do their first book on Micronesia and the next book that they're doing is they're in the Maquiladoras projects in Mexico, which God bless them. I'm not, I'm not throwing shade on that. I'm just saying that that's a particular privilege that they have when they're not, because they're not, because the, the academy itself is racialized. That's what Orientalism does, right? And I think that's what you're also experiencing to some degree experiencing. Oh, okay, as a psychologist, psychoanalyst, uh, you know, who am I to talk about art, right? That's the pur purview of art historians, right? Um, yeah, and when I presented this, actually, I won't name where, but recently, <laughs> um, they were, one group was like, uh, I don't understand which theory are you applying to which period of art history? And I'm like, no, I'm tracing this like line of different artists from like the past 150 years that aren't really related to each other in anybody else's mind, I don't think. I'm just noticing this thread. And they're like, well, which psychoanalytic theory are you using? And I'm like, well, I'm using Lacan and Laplanche and Winnicott. And <laughs> they, were like, they were just like, what? Also, <laughs> I'm like, I'm using my ideas from after I read all this other psychoanalytic theory for the past 25 years. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, uh, you know, God bless, uh, you know, art history. But it's tough, you know, because I've, you know, I've presented a few times in um, in art history milieus. And there's some really great work being done there. But there's also, again, some really, really high disciplinary walls. And, you know, I know that, for example, um, one of, for example, for the book, one of my reviewers came back and um, generally gave me a good review. Um, but, you know, made comments about sort of, of course, you know, can we talk about photography in the Middle East without talking about you know, European photographers. Can we talk about without, you know, these sorts of things and sort of telling, you know, it's really amazing. Um, 
you know, people say, well, you clearly haven't read such and such and such and such. You're right. I didn't because I really, really don't really care about, about you know, the carte visite in Paris, um, which, of course, I had to become responsible for knowing because of that. But, of course, when you're writing about the carte visite in Paris, you don't necessarily have to really be responsible for anything else. Um and that you might put as a footnote that this person went to the Middle East, their first photo excursion was actually to the Middle East. That's a, that's a footnote to you. And then you could talk about, and that gives you license to talk about Orientalist photography as much as you want. Um, but that's what disciplinary boundaries do. Um, I think it's getting a little bit better, which is nice. I think it's got better over the past you know, 20 years, but still, you know, it's, it's tough commuting. And I think you can, you can, you, for someone, for again, someone who is, has been sort of ghettoized into, um, because of, I do an area studies, uh, I do area studies in general, you really have to have built a, um, uh, you know, a, a currency, to give yourself authority to do that when that's not necessarily other people have license to do that. Uh, if you, and again, they much, maybe they should because it's, maybe it's good work. I'm not, so I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not belittling that, but I think it's, uh, yeah, these but are it's the pretty infuriating that everybody always has to refer back to the same people in this, right. from the same places for like all of time. Right. <laughs> but what that is, does this, I mean, that's, that reproduces, Two things, right? It re reproduces structures of power and disciplinary uh, uh, mechanisms, as you know, we were saying, you know, um, that enforce who can talk and who can't talk, right? So, for example, if you know Jane Smith said the exact who uh, said the exact same thing as you, but she had a you know an art history degree from you know Northwestern um, and was teaching at, you know, whatever school, then she may be given license to do that. So that's, it's not coincidental. And then of course it is precisely about this sort of discursive possibilities. Right. Um, I mean, I was told even when I was doing theory in nineties, when no one in, in, in Middle Eastern studies was doing theory, I was told literally you're like this in metaphor because it's a art history one or a modernist one, which is, you know, Picasso had to be able to draw his bull first before he then drew his, you know, cubist bull. Which I'm thinking, no, dude, that's actually kind of not the. That's exactly the opposite of the point. <laughs> you know, you have to have the, you know, you literally have to write. You have to produce academic trash, you know, paintings to then become a modernist. No. <laughs> I'm so tired of that argument. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's deployed for it's deployed for for um, very precise ideological reasons, you know, and it has very precise ideological effects. But, um, you know, we still punch through. Um, yeah. Talk we, about decolonial humanities. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that that really I mean, what we're talking about speaks to the way the academy is structured in general. And, you know, it's not like the man sitting on, you know, pulling levers in the 150th floor of, you know, the Freedom Tower in, you know, in New York City, you know, the Trilateral Committee, you know, controlling the academy. It's what this is. The, it's the, the weight 
and structure of academy that was built over the past 200 years, right? Mm -hmm. So um, Decolonizing Humanities uh, is a project that I started at William and Mary, uh, partially because there's some synergy on the ground between some colleagues, but also there's just a need for us to think about structures of how we approach humanities, but also how that approach produces us, right? It's not only my way of like, hey, let's rethink about how this is being taught, but how the way that it's being taught has produced us and the structure itself. Um, so yeah, so you know, and and to 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 find dehumanizing, uh, sorry, uh, decolonizing humanities is really hard um, because there's a sort of an inside and an outside, right? There's a structural level and then there's a pedagogical level, like how do we actually teach, right? And so I think just for us, it was the two centered issues of race, which is being done in other, doesn't have to be called decolonizing uh, humanities for that, but also, for example, in the United States, it's incredibly important for us to center issues of indigeneity, to think about our relationship in higher education uh, to um, the settler colonial society in which we live, to think about the ways in which um, our um, institution and our pedagogy, no matter how self-aware, also reproduces cis-heteropatriarchy, um, produces hegemony of white supremacy, even if you're trying to think about issues of race, right? So just because you think about issues of race doesn't mean you're really, really thinking about white supremacy. What does that actually mean? Um, so decolonized humanity is actually, I think, try is at this point, in, in, when Mary is just trying to think about the re relationship between what we do, just like just like whiteness is a relationship, right? Whiteness is not a thing, right? Like I said, it's not the man, right? I mean, even though I love the man, uh, I love that metaphor, and I think we should use it. But I mean, it's just not like you know, it's not the three people that Bernie talks about who who controls 50% of the wealth in the United States. Like that's a problem. We know that's a problem. But if we take those three people away, redistribute their 50% of the wealth, that's not going to necessarily dismantle white supremacy, right? Not to say that their their wealth is not built and facilitated by it, but you know. So it's also just thinking about our our um, whiteness as a as a as a social relation. Um, and so how the, and how does that affect our relationship to teaching the humanities? Right? What constitutes humanities? What constitutes something that we should be teaching or not? Um, so yeah, I mean that's it's a it's a big project. We've been we've been doing it for about two years here, um, and we're still stumbling around. You know. No, that's great. And, good, and the and way. you know the humanities has kept psychoanalysis alive a lot better than psychology has. Absolutely. Um, and that's a, I made sure to include a section in the in the book I just finished. Um, about lay, lay analysis and how important it is because, you know, I have a PsyD, a doctorate in psychology, and there was, I didn't even hear of Lacan until I moved to New York. I was already 30 years old, you know, and right. we, I read literally one paper by Freud in grad right. school. <laughs> right. Right. It's just gone. Right. Well, I think obviously, I mean, this is a cliche, but it's abs unfortunately, or maybe not fortunately, it's, it's absolutely true, which is, I mean, if you read Lacan, if you read uh, Freud, I mean, they are, they're humanists, 
there, I mean, Freud's most popular theoretical idiom, the Oedipal complex, comes out of the humanities, right? Comes out of Greek literature. Um, I mean, you know, the purloin letter, you know, I, I, which I think is actually one of Lacan's best um, um, pieces. Uh, you know, it comes out of literature. I mean, they all talk about James. They all talk, you know, they're, they're all, it's incredibly important for us. And I think that's why it's a little bit shocking sometimes for me to come into psychoanalytic spaces and still hear these sorts of discussions of social verse um, individual. It seems so like retrograde. And I understand where that comes from. Again, ideologically, we understand where that comes from. We understand how uh, psychosis has been depoliticized and how it's always actually fought its own impetus to be apolitical. I mean, we, we, we blame it on the American school, which we perhaps rightfully should, but it was quite alive, I think, also in Europe, even during Freud's time. I think Freud himself um, struggled with understanding psychoanalysis politically or deploying it politically. I mean, he had these sort of two faces. I think sometimes it was quite, um, you know, when he talked about Zionism and he wasn't a Zion, he was an anti-Zionist in as much as he didn't believe in Zionism. I mean, if you read his letter um, to folks who were trying to convince him otherwise, he, it was a very sort of psychoanalytic reading of Zionism. You know, so this is not to understand that he he can't. I mean, I think that's for the basis of what would happen in social psychoanalysis, which took over over the next you know twenty thirty years, which is incredibly political. But I think you know he himself also as you know as a Jew who wants to kind of keep his head down, you know, was also so afraid to be to make it too political, unlike some of his his followers, right? Um, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, I think uh, it was a shock to me find out like this battle is still going on within psychoanalysis is sort of finding like the 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 bound the border between where the, the ego starts and the social begins you know yeah. it's like i was taught in, in psychoanalytic training they told us we could not comment on any public figure uh wow. we could not talk about politics psychoanalytically like, it was just like, you're not allowed to do it. I don't know who said that, but that's right. what we were taught. Like, you're just not allowed to do it. It's something that's not done. It's crazy. Yeah, that's so crazy. I mean, it's funny because I think there's a problem. I mean, what has what happened to psychoanalysis, at least from my, pers my very sort of distant perspective, is that um, what happened in the years or the decades after psychoanalysis is that one level it was becoming depoliticized on the level of the left or or not even left, but even the right. I think what happened is the psychoanalysis used was used to um, psychoanalyze um, social uh, phenomenon, right? Which in many cases was retrograde and especially is used and to decades later still used in race uh, in, in, in terms of a racist uh, racial agenda intentional or not unintentional racial agenda right psychoanalysis uh, analyzing islam psychoanalyzing the you know the arab mind psychoanalyzing you know right? all that sort of stuff um and so i think at one level Psychoanalysis really hasn't gotten around its own culpability and how you kind of screw, f uh, forgive the language, how they kind of fucked it up. Because actually the leftists were really great at first, but they, I mean, but what happened is it became social psychoanalysis, which is great at one level, but it's also completely vacating on the other right on the other level, because because of that, I think they were afraid to say, OK, let's leave the social out. 
which is like it, there's a difference to, between importing the social in and then exporting social uh, 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 psychotic theory out. So I think there's a real there was a blur, which what what, what happened. So, but the fact of obviously for you to walk into a space and to not be able to use, which I you know when, when I was in uh, you know um, uh, therapy, my analysts. Um, did that, which made which actually made things a lot more legible, right? Uh, he was very agile in bringing in a large number of cultural references. He was very erudite, and I think he knew he was talking to a college professor. So I think he was able to you know, he was able to bring from pop you know uh, 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 pop culture to and 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 music to you know classical uh, references. So that actually it. To not let that happen is absurd, right? Um, yeah, so we're... But there are limitations, I think, also of psychoanalysis within, I think, within the academy itself. And, and that's why I feel that being introduced through, this, through the current book that I'm writing with Laro and Palestine, but also being introduced into, you know, I've been presenting at uh, Division 30, I for the first time at Division 39 last year, and um, hanging out more with clinicians allows me also to step out of what I feel, as I told you, I feel as a, sec a, a limited sectarianism, a very limiting sectarianism of the academy, uh, how we approach um, other schools and thoughts, how not to think synthetically, um, uh, uh, which I think is... is, is has has I think I, my work has got a lot more sophisticated in terms of psychedelic theory when I'm able to sort of expand out, right? I mean, like Winnicott, come on, like, come in. Who in the '90s was talking about Winnicott in, in the academy? Nobody, right? Now it's sort of coming in, you know. Um, so it'd yeah, be great so. to have you uh, in Copenhagen too, because uh, the space is very small. It only holds 65 people, so I think I'm only gonna have 50 people total, so that we have a little room, um, right. and. Uh, yeah, it's all, it's like psychoanalysts that are interested in the psychoanalytic community outside of institutional walls. So like some people might be in, affiliated with institutes, but everyone is also open to exploring networking, not within those kinds of hierarchical authoritarian boundaries. And so, yeah, so everybody coming is, is great, basically, and forward thinking and open-minded, at least to some degree, so that's good. <laughs> More so than at usual conferences, I'll right. say. <laughs> and, people bring in, and people bring in their racial baggage and their cultural baggage, and that's stuff that could be worked out. I think it's, it's, I think it's, it's a mistake to sort of think that we can check that or um, the, a good productive environment allows that. I mean, I don't want to sound like a psychoanalyst because I'm not, or a psychologist because I'm not, but it allows that process to actually happen rather than disavow it, which is which we both have been in psycho, psychoanalytic spaces and conferences where that disavowal happens constantly, right? Where there's a there's a like you're woke, so we don't need to talk about the we don't need to talk about a process that's going on at this time. Right. Just because you're woke doesn't like I, I'm I'm I work through my maleness because I'm woke. I'm work through my you know my whiteness because I'm woke, right? Um, so uh, hopefully that space will allow us to do that as well. For sure, right? you have to talk about what's happening in the room. It's a bunch of psychoanalysts. Right. We we see it. <laughs> right. Well, do you? Hopefully, 
Some of us do. We'll see. Exactly. I was at a conference at one time, which I will not say where, and I had a liberal Zionist want to engage me. And so, you know, as I said, Laura and I are working on this book. It's called Psychoanalysis Under Occupation, and where we are discussing, uh, we're, we're, we're trying to focus on the practice of uh, Palestinian clinicians. And part of this book also, um, she and I actually uh, published one article, and then I published another article that thinks critically about dialogue initiatives and how dialogue initiatives actually replicate modes of repression and oppression and um, do not work to remediate the settler colonial condition. Um, and so a lot of liberal Zionists take issue because they really what they really want to do is they want to connect, right? You know, they want to be acknowledged and they by acknowledging that there is a Palestinian, that there is an indigenous person that you are not, right? And I had this conversation, and the more I pushed up, at, you know, this is the process, and this is, speaks to the issue of being the process in the room. This guy's a psychoanalyst, not me, by the way. And I frustrate him so much because I'm basically, we, I'm arguing for the politics of refusal. That it is an essential mental health um, imperative to some degree that Palestinians at this point refuse dialogue because the refusal of their dialogue is actually, I mean, but acceptance of dialogue is really and actually a refusal of their own subjectivity. Mm. And this it was not able to be metabolized by this person in any possible way. He was getting so frustrated. At one point he yelled at me that you, by the way, I'm Lebanese, I'm not Palestinian, but you are not, you, the Palestinians, are not ready to for dialogue. Because you are too, you have to deal literally with like your, I think what he said, something like, you have to deal with, you know, not oppressing women, and you have to deal with all the shit in your retrograde shit, backward shit in your society before you can come to the table. And that is, this is in a psychoanalytic conference. By the way, no one in that room, no one in that room called him out. No one in that, it was, this was a progressive room, right? Talking, in fact, arranged around issues of coloniality, shall we say, and no one in that room called him out. And that's the process in the room where a psycho, psychoanalysts at times tend to check that awareness at the door um you know but that's what you know that's no, why it's absolutely true that that needs to be brought up and addressed right then and there i mean if people come to the table on somebody else's terms they've already lost well that's exactly right i mean this is you know this is i goes back to my first book about you know the hegelian dialogue is right when you say yes right? this is of course and this is althusser right about hailing and interpolation People forget what the metaphor is. The metaphor is, is that if a cop hails you and you say yes, you have now you have now entered into that sort of uh, dialectic by which you are being acknowledged and recognized and and, and become a sub, you become subjectified, right? Um, and exactly. And I think uh, what 
what indigenous scholars are showing us, especially those from um, North America, Turtle Island, um, and um, what is now known as New Zealand and Australia, is they are showing us the importance of the right to refuse, right? And that is, this is not pedantic. Um, and they also show us the imperative to refuse. Um, so going just back to psychoanalysis, it's really funny because I think whether it's in the academy or whether it's in clinicians, there is a still resistance to understand how psychoanalysis provides us with certain tools. But on the other hand, we refuse to use those tools when, it, when, when, we're, when we're pushed. We can like rip down the walls, but we're not going to rip down the struts and the, and, and the beams that hold up that structure, right? Um, so again, I mean, the fact that that person who's an analyst said this stuff and was not able to realize it, and he'll call it an enactment. It's not an enactment, you asshole. You're a freaking ass, you know, and couldn't, pro and couldn't process this idea. You couldn't process someone saying no to you. That's not an enactment. It's an enactment of what would happen if I were to do this, which is why a, a, you know, a settled colonial state like Israel might then go punish the Palestinians, right? <laughs> That's what it's an enactment of, if nothing else, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I look forward to, to Copenhagen because I think people are, hopefully we can, you, that uh, those, those issues will come up and hopefully people can, you know, attend to the process as they say. We have at least three political panels that's great. That's great. That's yeah. really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm really excited to be in the room. You know, these, again, these are, you know, I, I do feel that I'm still a student, you know. Um, but we should yeah. all be. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you're, again, you know, you were, you've moved into, you know, dealing with art. And I think um, for us to, to think about, for example, uh, um, how art is produced is important of just rather reading representation, right? Because, you know, coming out of the 90s, everybody, for example, was doing like film. Everyone's a film studies person. You do complete, you're going to write an article at some point on film, right? And people who were doing film studies were kind of getting pissed off because, you know, it is about, there is there are sort of technical things that really inform how art is being constructed. So when we talk about formalism and when I sort of think about formalism, in a critical way, we also want to understand like what is it producing and how how does it produce through that process of 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 of, of, of you know technique, right? So for me, coming from I'm like I'm still learning that, which is so exciting, like to see how technically psychoanalysis thinks through certain things, not theoretically, technically. You know, um, it's I think it's made my work a lot more rich, you know. Yeah, and I mean, especially if you've been through analysis, I mean, that's really where you learn everything, you know, is seeing it at play in your own life. Um, right. And then you can help other people see it at play in their lives and read about it and be like, oh, is that what so-and-so called that? I, I see what they're saying, right. you know? Right. Right. <laughs> but you right. have to see it at play in your own life. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, so, yeah, we were in Palestine and this, you know, I'm working, so we go, we do a lot of sort of participatory research too, because part of our commitment, Laura and I made, especially with the beginning of this project, was that what we don't want to do is have this piece be extractive in any way, 
right? It's very easy and it's so often, especially in the case with like Palestine, you go, Palestine suffer tourism, suffer research, right? Um, uh, I forgot what Eve Tuck called it or something like um, damage research, right? You go, you look at the damage and see how hard people are suffering and then kind of leave, right? And it's, it's really extractive, you know? So we've been, we've gone to Palestine, we've gone to places in the West Bank and Bethlehem, Ramallah, East Jerusalem, um, and with also within the 1948 boundaries of, of the state now known as Israel, um, and to see how people are actually practicing, um, and in the process also how they think through their practice. Um, it's, and also to see psychoanalysis the tension of psychoanalysis as a practice, the practicalities of it and the training, but also to see how it kind of falls apart sometimes, you know, um, uh, to see how it enlists even Palestinian, I mean, those, those issues of coloniality enlist Palestinian clinicians themselves because you're trained in it, right? Um, to see their learning process. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been exciting. Uh, I'm it's sure Lara will, yeah, Lara will share that with you all in... Um, in uh, in Copenhagen, no doubt. But yeah, we did we did a lot of cool things thinking about. Uh, for example, I did. So she does the technical stuff, right? And then I sort of do the theoretical stuff. So I did a bit, bit bit about Fanon in Palestine, you know. And it was such an incredible moving experience for me, right? And it allowed me to sort of think also by which, in you know, ha have psychoanalysis helped me uh, think in ways in which these clinicians are working through stuff. Um, to think about their practice and how they work, how they work their practice with their with their patients. Um, so it's yeah, it's really powerful. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Stephen Shihai. For more please visit his website, stephenshehai.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-H-E-E-H-I.com. You may also visit the Decolonizing Humanities Project at William & Mary. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Trapart Books, 2019, and also available as an ebook through iBooks and Kindle. For more information, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You may also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net and the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three
C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. And now, Night of Swords, from the album, The Chapel is Empty, a collaboration with acoustic timber frequency, available from Chapart Editions and Highbrow Low Life. Night of Swords. Exhibiting at several of the salons, and his view of art was strong. Influenced by, during a period, there were in total six of these salons in Paris and Brussels. They presented avant-garde, the rainfall. It amounted to an average and mostly occurred in this season. Scientifically, later installed, water, Record the world essaying a psychology of dreams that tries to keep a sense of the underworld always present in our work. With them, this moves backwards from logos to mythos. This move is the embodiment of a series of opposites. Seven of Swords. To this end, she saw the creative process as the ultimate sacred act, whereby through emulating the act of creation, Humanity could move back towards a reintegration with their divine origin. Artists have been gifted with the talent to create worlds. Those works of art that could spark the spiritual evolution, she believed, between normalcy and the features of straight males. While these correlations may exist, King of Pentacles, as reactions, this is also why the same needs as artificial humans cold, distinctly non-human behavior. And today, this is what underpins the rationale behind the decision to introduce an 
crossroads where the arts become a locus for dialogue, for remaking cultural sense. Our history has yet to be written and the success or failure of this creative. Draw one more card. The Eight of Cups. The beauty of a work is made from sublimated reality. The mysticism of a work derives from the depiction of the unreal. Laced or hooked in front. Which line? Lace frills around the neck. I am wearing eyeshadow and lipstick. I've dreamt deeply and slept heavily. A wild animal. Never looks so well as when some obstacle of pronounced durability is between us. The personal experience has intensified rather than diminished that idea. After all, however, there is nothing like custom, for neither defining data is highlighting the premise of the movement itself accentuating its resistance to definition. Systemization and categorization. A resistance reflective of the human unconscious and sexuality, which subvert normalization and classification. Proponents of new ways of thinking about society, and there was still nothing in the mind that was not first in sense. The dream may mean something, yes, but it was basically a rearrangement of daylife residues in accordance with building operations. This was during the time which the young Dalai Lama spent in meditation. Three years. It was pointed out that worms and insects might easily be killed during the work. Soon after the outbreak of the war, author and poet 
Ball came to Zurich with Emmy Hennings. Ball, himself a writer, philosopher, performer, and producer, first established the Cabaret Voltaire as a literary cabaret where he accompanied Hennings on the piano while she performed songs and three quests for God, three religious modes. You should understand religion in the sense of that which connects the creature to the creator. Like a shipwreck, we die going into ourselves as though we were drowning inside our hearts, as though we lived falling out of the skin and into the soul. Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, Robert Motherwell, the Dada painters and poets, Hans Richter, Dada art and anti-art,